to answer a question left over from before the break. It's in the August 2nd issue, August 2nd, 1999 issue of The New Yorker. And the name of the article is The Physical Genius. The Physical Genius. And the author's name is Malcolm Gladwell. So, if you'd like to look that up. It's a nice article. Okay, this last section is going to be devoted to using the four bases for power, the four edibadas, as means of developing discernment and leading to liberation. And assuming you've got concentration, then what's the next issue? <clears throat> the one that's easiest to deal with is number 11, so let's deal with that one first. And then we'll go back to passage number 10. Okay, then Venerable Anuruta went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat down one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My persistence is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. And yet my mind is not released from the affluence through lack of clinging or sustenance. Okay, he's got a problem. Sariputta's response is, My friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye, purified and passing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my persistence is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness established and shaken, my body is calmed and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness, that is related to your restlessness. In other words, you're obsessed with the fact that you're doing everything right and yet there's no response. Okay. When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the effluence of lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if, abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless property. Okay, what are the three qualities he's asking him to let go of? Conceit, restlessness, and anxiety. Okay. I've seen some people interpret this as saying, okay, stop doing those psychic powers. And that's not right. He's not criticizing the psychic powers. He's criticizing the mental defilements that can arise around him. Simply being, you know, being proud of the fact that you can do this is conceit. You think about all the other things that you're doing right and that get you restless because you want to see the results. And then you're concerned that you're not getting an awakening, that's anxiety. So when those thoughts arise, you drop them. So in this case, the, it's, he's not saying you stop doing the powers. In fact, Anuruta was famed after becoming an arahant as being the foremost in his ability to practice the divine eye. So he doesn't stop doing the practice. It's, he watches out for the arising of conceit, restlessness, and anxiety around those powers. And then in abandoning those, then he became an arahant. So if you ever gain any psychic powers and you find conceit arising around it, okay, this is what you do. You drop the conceit. That of the two discussions is the easier. Any questions? Yes? Actually, the last three fetters are, well, there's restlessness is one of them, conceit is one, and then there's ignorance. So ignorance was not listed there for some reason. Yes? Uh, so how do you go about directing the mind to the death of Okay, that's... There's one description in the canon where he's, the Buddha says, okay, once you've attained the state of jhana, and you really get into it, and we'll be discussing this in a minute, they, where there's... You take pleasure, find satisfaction, settle, and indulge in that particular state of, state of mind. Then you pull yourself out a little bit. And this is one of the, this is one of the, where the skill in jhana practice really comes in, is your ability to pull yourself out of one of those states without destroying it. So you're not totally out or totally in, but you're sort of at the edge. And then you observe to see, okay, what's actually going on in here? And you begin to see that there are forms and feelings and perceptions and thought constructs and consciousness. They're all five khandhas. In each case, they're characterized, even in the state of jhana. There's inconstancy, there's stress, not self. 
And basically it's to develop a sense of disenchantment with that state. And then you realize, okay, this, this is as good as it gets, you know, this nice state of concentration. There's only thing le- one thing left, and that's the deathless. And then you just sort of incline your mind in that direction. Say, what would be unconditioned here? Now the trick there is that you don't, oftentimes when we pull out of one state of concentration to go into another, there's an intention to go. You drop the intention to be in X, and you, you can sort of give rise to the intention to go to Y. Now with the deathless, you can't intend to go there. And so you just say, wait, can it? Okay. Even the, even the intention would be a conditioning. Okay, can you drop one intention without replacing it with another? How do you do that? That's the trick. But it's possible. And in that case, then, then you open up. Good grief, was that? Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, it's analogous in the sense that you see the whole universe and you'll see what all the beings are doing in the universe. Now John Lee talks about this, saying that you can, you can, not only can you see them, if you have the divine ear, you can listen in. One of my favorite lines from a John Lee is to say, if you're tired of listening to human beings, you can listen to the devas talking about how great it is up in heaven, you know. <laughs> But with the divine eye, you, you see the, you know, the whole expanse of the cosmos, from the Brahmas on down to the hell realms. And if you, if you don't get caught up on, hey, I can see this, it's, it's a very sort of disenchanting kind of experience. I mean, seeing this whole realm, and it's just constantly, you know, beings are leaving one realm and going to another one, and there's no real progress. It's just kind of a churning around and around and around. If you take that perception in the wisest way, it gives a sense of dispassion, leads to a sense of dispassion. But there are actually there are quite a few discussions of this in the canon. It's just that, you know, in the meditation circles in the states, as I said, the psychic powers are not emphasized, and so those passages tend to be dropped out. Um, there are lots of descri- descriptions of you know seeing devas and seeing hell beings. In fact, sometimes in Thailand, if someone asks, if you go to Thailand and meditate and people ask you, what do you see? Either the expectation is that you see a deva or a hell, hell being, or else you see the lottery number for the next time around. <laughs> so, and my teacher, I, I, every now and then he would let slip something that he was seeing these things. Remember one day in particular, a storm had come through the monastery. We had a large mango tree right, right next to a papaya tree. And in, during the storm, one of the mango branches had fallen down and smashed the papaya tree. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a papaya tree, but it's very, it doesn't have a core. It's just kind of a very flimsy kind of tree. And this papaya tree was flat on the ground. And so the next morning after the storm, a John Fung was walking past. He looked over and he said, well, that's what you get for living in a papaya tree. <laughs> and he's kind of walked on. <laughs> so obviously he saw something I didn't see. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Just that some people need to see the big picture before they get disenchanted. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, final passage for today, passage number 10 on page 9. <clears throat> now, this passage doesn't mention the Itibada directly, but there's a lot of them are implied in the discussion. And while we go through it, I want you to notice that 
there's a parallel between this passage and the instructions to Rahula. Now remember in Rahula, number, lesson number one, the importance of being honest about what's going on in your actions. Secondly, when you see that there's suffering or there's pain or there's harm that's being done, look for your action, what you're doing to cause it. If you see that you're doing something that's causing suffering, you drop it, you stop it. And so, on the, Rahu, on the instructions to Rahula, it covers all levels of experience, you know, physical action, verbal actions, and mental actions. In this particular sutta, the Buddha is talking to Ananda, and he's applying that particular approach specifically to meditation, specifically to the attainment of strong concentration. Okay, it starts. I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at Sawati in the Eastern Monastery, the palace of Megara's mother. Now, Megara's mother is actually Megara's daughter. The story goes that Megara's daughter, her name was Wisaka, um, became a disciple of the Buddha. She became a stream enterer. And then she taught the Dharma to her father. And from that point, her father was named Megara. And from that point on, she was called Megara's mother because she was his Dharma teacher. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Then the evening, Venerable Ananda, coming out of seclusion, approached the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, on one occasion when the Blessed One was staying among the Sakyans in a Sakyan town named Nagaraka, there, face to face with the Blessed One, I heard and learned this. I now often dwell in a dwelling of emptiness. Did I hear that correctly, learn it correctly, attend to it correctly, remember it correctly? And the Buddha says, yes, Ananda, you did. Okay. Now, as well as before, I often dwell in a dwelling of emptiness. Now, we have to watch throughout this discussion what he means by emptiness, okay? Just as this palace of Megara's mother is empty of elephants, cattle, and mares, empty of gold and silver, empty of assemblies of women and men, and there's only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the community of monks. Even so, Ananda, a monk not attending to the perception, or this is mental label of village, not attending to the perception of human being, attends to the singleness based on the perception of forest. His mind takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles and indulges in its perception of forest. Now let's stop there for a minute. He's making a comparison with the fact that when you go to this palace, which actually looks like it's more of a wilderness or a forest, <clears throat> he says people are not there, communities, village issues are not there. Um, there's another one. It's empty of elephants and cattle and mares and gold and silver. In the same way, when, when, you, when a meditator goes into the forest, you realize that once you take the forest as your object of perception. Just think forest, 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 or a wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. You begin to notice after a while that, okay, once you're focused on the wilderness, issues that would be related to perceptions of in the villages you left, the people you left, all the issues that you left back in society, they're not there. It's just the forest that's actually there in that particular mode of perception. It's just forest. So in this way, it's empty. It's empty of the disturbances that would come from other conflicting perceptions or other perceptions that would grow out of the perception that you're focused on. So, so first you start with forest. This is one of the reasons why people go to meditate in the forest. You sit at your home, and what have you got? You've got your perception of home, home, home. And once it's your home, if this were my home, I'd be concerned about that the fact that the paint isn't, doesn't look right over there. And the fact, you know, the fact that the, you know, the door opens to the, the bathroom back there and you can see straight into the bathroom, you start thinking of issues that you've got to take care of, you know, things you're responsible for. Right? <laughs> but it's not my place. I'm going to leave tomorrow. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have any issues here. <laughs> so this is why people go into the forest instead of meditating at home all the time, okay? Because once you're out in the forest, you realize that any perception you have related to the people you left behind, the issues you left behind, are totally coming out of your mind. They're not there innately in the forest. Whereas, you know, that's an issue innately right there on that wall, right there. That's going to be taken care of. You know, that's the way the mind works. Um, and you notice this when people go out into the wilderness. Many of them do take their issues with them. The last time I discussed this sutta in public, I was at the DPP. Those of you who were there, could you abide with my story for a minute? Um, I was in Zion National Park one time, climbing Angel's Landing. And it was a hot day, and 
I don't know if you about us, know about us monks, but when we go hiking, we wear flip-flops. And you get up on the slick rock on the way to Angel's Landing, and it's a 1,500-foot know, drop down to the canyon, and you're wearing flip-flops. After a while, you decide these flip-flops are not very safe, so you go barefoot. So I took off my flip-flops, and then it was hot, so I took off my robe and tied it like a sash around my waist. And as we're going up the trail, we could hear someone coming down in the other direction about 100 yards away, talking very loudly. And even from 100 yards, it was very quick that we learned that they were working for a modeling and acting agency in Los Angeles, and they were, disc- they were talking shop. And I kept thinking, here we are in Zion Canyon, and you're filling Zion Canyon with shop talking. Instead of you know, thinking about the wilderness or the beauty of the rock or anything, it was all about this actress and that model. The conclusion of the story was they came around the bend and they saw me. And they said, look, 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 doesn't it feel like we're in Tibet? <laughs> so one of them pulled out his camera and the other one said, oh, make sure you get his feet. See these guys bare feet, bare feet there. <laughs> Felt like I was in a zoo. <laughs> so these are the perceptions people carry with them. However, you stay in the forest long enough, you begin to realize, okay, these perceptions are things you carry with them. They're totally arbitrary. You can drop them. And so all you're left is with that sense of wilderness, the sense of forest. Okay, now once, and once you've got that perception, which is lacking all those other disturbances, as it says here, you take pleasure, find satisfaction, settle, and indulge in that perception. You just totally give yourself to that one perception. And you don't focus on any other perception. Just keep that in mind. This is wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. Okay, once you've settled in that, you pull back a little bit and discern. Okay, this is what you discern. Whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of village are not present. Whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of human being are not present. There's only this modicum of disturbance, the singleness based on the perception of forest. He discerns that this mode of perception is empty of the perception of village. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of human being. There's only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the perception of forest. Thus he regards it as empty of whatever is not there and whatever remains he discerns as present. There is this. And so this, his entry into emptiness, accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning and pure. Okay, there's an awful lot in that paragraph to discuss. Okay, notice what he's talking, the emptiness and lack of emptiness is questions of lack of disturbance and disturbance. Okay, there's a disturbance present, and then there's this lack of disturbance, which is the emptiness in this case. Now, this is not nirvana. It's just, we're talking about a mode of perception. The word mode of perception in Pali is sanyagata. If you know Pali, if you know a little bit about Pali, sanya is perception. Sanyagata it's a sanya plus a G-A-T-A. It means pretty much a, a perception that you have fixed on, that you've focused on, you've taken as your stance. You've settled on that one perception. And you'll see this more clearly as we go through the more refined levels. And then secondly, as you step back, what makes this perception of emptiness accurate as you alight on the emptiness they cause that is just observing what's there and what's not. And it's accurate in that it, you perceive what's there, you know what's there, and you also know what's not. You're not desire, denying anything there, and you're not adding anything to, to what is already there. Okay. And this is where the element of truthfulness comes in. You're not denying things. Many times when you get into a state of concentration, there's a huge blind spot around your object because you're trying to focus so intently on that one object, you begin to deny the existence of other things. But this one, you begin to pull back a little bit. You have to be very clear, okay, what disturbance is there and what disturbance is not? And you notice that the only disturbance that remains is the singleness based on your perception. Well, who's doing the perception? You're the one doing the perception. So the next step, of course, would be to drop that perception. Just as the Buddha told Rahula earlier, okay, if you see that you're doing something that's causing, in, in Rahula's case, it would be harm or pain, you drop that. Here, on the more subtle level in concentration practice, is simply a disturbance. You see that you're causing the disturbance, so you drop that disturbance. And that's what moves you to the next level of concentration. Are there any questions on that? Yes? 
back off a little bit. There are lots of passages where the Buddha says, okay, once you're in a good, strong state of concentration, you back up a bit to observe what's going on. So you're not fully, you're pulling out of that indulgence or the immersion. It feels like that's introducing another perception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a shift of perception because you've got, you've got the emptiness of your mode of perception and then there's this thing they call a lighting on perception, a lighting on emptiness. And that's the next step back. So that's you know that's developing your powers of discrimination. You know all these elements are here just to get into that one perception. You it has to be the desire to take pleasure, find satisfaction, settle and indulge in the perception. Okay, you've got your element of desire, just to settle in there. And persistence means you stay with it. And then as you pull back, then you examine what's there and what's not there. This is the intentness and the um, discrimination. Yes. If you're not skillful enough, it will. And this is the, one of the skills in concentration, is being able to pull back a little bit and yet not destroy the concentration. So in actual execution, what would that feel like? How would you, would you tell yourself to pull back? It, it depends on where you feel you are in relationship to the object. What you're trying to do is create a little bit of distance or observe the observer. Now in time, my teacher used to say, lift the mind a little bit above the object so you're not so thoroughly immersed in it, just a little bit above. I can sort of feel it when you're up there looking, but mm-hmm. the point of making the decision to go back is where I mm-hmm. it seems to me that the concentration would be interrupted. It's, a, it's just a slight interruption. Okay, again, it's, 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 it's an act of discrimination. And so there is a little bit of, you're a little bit out of, the, out of the concentration at that point. And it's just simply taking note. And basically, in taking note of presence and absence of disturbance is about as basic as you can get. You don't even have to say what kind of disturbance or what kind of, I, f- I forgot what the, the word for poly word for disturbance is here. But it's just, I don't like this. This is, this is still a little bit of, it can be, seen as a burden, it can be seen as disturbance, an annoyance. You don't quite like what you've got, you want something better. And so then you move on. Yes? Anguttara 9.36. Anguttara 9.36. Put another plug for Handful of Leaves. It's in volume three. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to the next one. Okay, now that you've decided to drop the perception of forest, Okay, further and under the monk, not attending to the perception of human being, which means you don't retreat to a more blatant level, and not attending to the perception of forest, you attend to the perception singleness based on the perception of earth. Now remember, the word perception here means the mental note that you keep in mind. It's not that you're blotting out everything else, it's just this is the only perception that you keep reminding yourself of, that you keep saying to yourself. Your mind takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles in indulgence in its perception of earth. And here comes a great image. Just as a bull's hide is stretched free from wrinkles with a hundred stakes. Have you ever seen that happen where they take a bull's hide and stretch it out all the way around? Even so, without attending to all the ridges and hollows, the river, ravines, the tracks of stumps and thorns, the craggy irregularities of this earth, you attend to the singleness based on the perception of earth. So in other words, you just notice the earthness of everything that's made out of earth. Now, earth here means anything solid. So when you see that wall, you don't say wall, you say solid, 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 solid. 
And then you just stick with that one perception. And that cuts through your perceptions of human beings. You can do this in the forest, you can come back here, you can do it here at, at IMC. It's just a bunch of solid things sitting in a solid room. And when you can look at people that way, then all the issues you might have about do they like me, do they not like me, do I like them, do I not like them, those issues are gone. It's just solid, you know? What's there to get up worked up about solids? You know? Okay, so once you've got that single perception, okay, you take pleasure, find satisfaction, settle and indulge in your perception of Earth. You discern that whatever disturbances would exist based on the perception of human being are not present. Whatever disturbances would exist based on the perception of forest are not present. There's only this modicum of disturbance, the singleness based on the perception of Earth. You discern, and then it's the same pattern as before. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of human being. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of forest. This passage, by the way, if you chant it in, in Pali, is a really neat rhythmic passage. Sunya mirang sanya katang. It's kind of cool. Okay. There's only this number emptiness, the singleness based on the perception of earth. Thus, you regard it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains, you discern as present. There is this. That's, all you have, that's the only note you have to make. It's not much more of a verbal note than that. Just there's this. So you're not analyzing it too much. It's just presence or absence of disturbance. And so this, your emptying into emptiness, of course, with actuality, is undistorted in meaning and pure. Now you begin to see the pattern, right? That you notice a particular perception, single, keep it single, indulge in that singleness, and then comes a point where you can observe it. What's present there, what's absent there. And then when you see what's present there in terms of the disturbance, then you abandon that disturbance, and then your mind moves to more refined perception. Questions based on that? If you don't like earth, you can do this with breath. Think of breath energy permeating everything. Well, your own body, in that perception, your own body would be earth as well. John Lee talks about filling your filling your body with a perception of breath, and then and then you okay. How does that change your relationship to the body? If you tend to think of the body as being a lot of solid, and there are all these sensations that correspond to the solidity of the body, but if you tell yourself, okay, those are actually breath sensations, and you begin to notice, well, this one feels like a pretty knotty breath sensation. It's all tied up. Okay, let's untie the knots. And that way you get really, you start indulging in breath. The whole body just becomes nothing but breath. And then John Lee talks about perceiving the breath energies that go out from the body or, or already exist outside in the world and then making contact with those. And I think that's where he got a lot of his psychic powers. Anything else? Okay, then takes the same process through the infinitude of, of space. Did we get did we get space? Did we do space? Oh, we haven't done space. I'm sorry. Okay, you drop Earth and then you move to space as your perception. Now, in the sense of practicing concentration practice, you get to the point where the breath gets still. Everything gets still. And as your body gets still in that way, you don't have to breathe in and out anymore. Your sense of the boundary of the body disappears. And your body feels more and more like just a mist of sensations. And if you want to, you can focus on the sensations or you can focus on the space in between. When you focus on the space in between, you feel there's no, there's no boundary. And so it just spreads out. Your awareness of space spreads out in all directions. And then you take that perception of space and you can move around in that for a while. You indulge in just that sense of space, space, space. Okay, and the disturbance based on space is a lot less than any disturbance based on Earth. It's just, it's a more singular 
kind of quality and earthness. So you see the pattern here that follows the pattern that was taught to Rahula. You, you look for any presence of disturbance, which would correspond to any presence of harm or suffering. You see that you're doing it, and so you drop the action. So you stop doing that. And this will move you, if your mind is, is properly concentrated, this will move you to a deeper level. And then you step back and you observe that. It's this ability to step back and observe, as with Rahula. Not just to be in the intention, but also to observe the intention, observe the act, observe the results of your action. Okay, we're developing this, this sense of observer who's watching all this through the development of those four fa- the, the four bases of success. There's the desire for less stress, less disturbance. Okay, there's the persistence in sticking with the perception. There's the intentness in actually sticking with it and then observing it, and then the discrimination, realizing, okay, this is the disturbance right here, as opposed to the emptiness that surrounds it. It's, and that's what enables you to go on to less and less and less stressful forms of meditation. Yes? Um, what is the Okay, the space in between. The sensory field is actually, if you look at it very carefully, it's like these little dots of sensation. And between the dots is space. It's kind of like connect the dots, only you don't connect the dots. <laughs> Disconnect the dots. So, so it's the same pattern that takes you all the way through the different levels of concentration. Infinitude of consciousness, nothingness, neither perception or non-perception. Okay. Attending to the perception, so not attending to the perception of the dimension of nothingness, not attending to the perception of the dimension of neither perception or non-perception. You attend to the singleness based on the themeless concentration of awareness. Okay, this themeless concentration of awareness is one in which there is no mental perception, or no mental label that labels it. It just seems to be awareness, aware of awareness with no verbal note that goes along with it. Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, when in Tibet, in Dzogchen, they talk about Rigpa. I think this may be it. It's the theme of concentration, because there's no mental note. The word sanya that we've been translating as perception here, it's interesting that the Thais also use the word sanya to mean agreement or contract, something that Basically, it's, it's a message from one part of your mind to another. And you agree that this little sign or this little metal note is, is equivalent to what you're talking about. This note means, you know, this metal note means X. This metal note means Y. Yes, yes. There's an agreement there. So the mind talking back and forth to itself. But there finally comes a point where the, where the concentration is so much focused on the awareness itself that you don't need to have a theme, or don't need to have a sign by which you communicate from one part of the brain to another. You're just there with that themeless concentration of awareness. Okay, you discern that whatever disturbances would exist based on the perception of the dimension of nothingness are not present. Whatever disturbances would exist based on the perception of the dimension of neither perception or non-perception are not present. There's only this modicum of disturbance that connected with the sense sensory spheres dependent on this very body with life as its condition. So in this case, the mind is not adding a metal note that's going to disturb its awareness. It seems just to be pure awareness. And what have you got? You've got the six sense spheres dependent on the body with life as your condition. And this is getting the mind at this point is causing very little stress for itself. And then you back off a little bit to observe, okay, what's present and what's absent. Now, that minute, moment of backing off, you're not totally in the themeless concentration. You've backed off to observe. And then finally, okay, you stay right there because you're not going to blo- no, you're not going to obliterate life, okay? 
Then you know, so even this themeless concentration of awareness is fabricated and mentally fabricated. Not fashion, fabricated and mentally fashioned. Now, if I were writing this, I would have added, hey, because at that point, everything seems to be so quiet, so still, so unfabricated, that it's a real surprise when you finally realize, hey, there's actually fabrication going on even in this refined state. And from that, you discern, okay, whatever is fabricated in mentally fashion is in constant and subject to cessation. Okay, so it's this point that this, this is where you start inclining your mind to the deathless. You've gotten to the most refined state of awareness that can be done. And you see that even that is fabricated. And so what's left? You don't want to fabricate anything at all. This is that decision we talked about earlier. You realize that even a very, very refined state of awareness is fabricated like this. It's intended. There's an intentional element. Let's just drop the intention. And in the dropping of the intention, okay, that's when your mind is released from the fermentations of sensuality, becoming, and ignorance. And it's at this point, okay, now, this, your mode of perception is empty of those fermentations. It's not just empty of a disturbance, it's empty of any potential for disturbing the mind. I said earlier the word fermentation here is asava, A-S-A-B-A. Different ways of translating effluent, something that flows out of the mind. Another way, something that bubbles up in the mind, that's where the fermentation translation comes in. Either way, it's the potential for defilement to arise in the mind. And in through cutting through the, the process of fabrication to the point where there is no fabrication at all in the mind, okay, then that cuts through the possibility of the fermentations coming up again. And that's, that's release. And then finally he says, okay, whatever remains you discern as present, there is this. And so this, your entry into emptiness, accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning, pure, superior, and unsurpassed. Okay, this is this is as far as emptiness goes, free from defilement. In the interest of saving paper, I didn't include the final paragraph of that. Then I realized later that I could have included it if I wanted to. At any rate, um, the Buddha says that anyone who has attained pure emptiness has done it this way. Anyone who will attain the pure, unsurpassed emptiness will do it this way. Anyone at present who is doing it is doing it this way. So again, it's similar to that process with uh, Rahula we talked about earlier, where you look at what you're doing and gradually you get more and more skilled at what you're doing by observing where there's disturbance and where there's lack of disturbance. And I think this, this passage is a good one for ending the jhana wars. Because it doesn't matter what state of mind you've got in, as long as you can pull back and observe where the disturbance is, where the lack of disturbance is, can drop that disturbance, go to a greater state of concentration, you've got the tools you need for awakening, whatever the state of mind is. So when someone says, I've attained this state, is it jhana or is it not jhana? I say, well, look at it. And just work at it from this point of view, and then you can work with whatever you've got. Are there any questions? Yeah. I think it's because some people are really stubborn. They have to go to the ultimate level of concentration before they're going to let go. Whereas other people have more discernment and they can let go at earlier stages. So when you say at the end of this sutra, where it says whoever has gone to emptiness has done it this way, it doesn't necessarily mean going through all You don't have to go through all eight. No. It says, all those who have attained the, the superior, unsurpassed, pure emptiness have done it this way. 
in the past. All those who in the future will do it, they'll do it this way. And all those in the present. I think he's, instead of referring to all eight, all the levels of concentration, he's referring more to the process, this process of stepping back and observing what's present, what's absent in terms of disturbance, lack of disturbance, and then letting go. Right. What's interesting is, again, he talks about the, this emptiness being pure. You remember when he was talking to Rahula, he was talking about attaining purity of your mental acts through this process of sort of looking at what you're doing, seeing the results, and then adjusting so that you would cause less and less and less suffering. So this is, and this takes the purity to a different level. Entirely. Question? Yeah, they're explained in Wings to Awakening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. How do these differ from the jhanas? These? Yeah. Um, he starts out with earth and then jumps straight to space. Mm-hmm. But then, you, then you're going through the formless jhanas. Yeah. And then this themeless concentration of awareness is something that's not mentioned in the usual, the usual lineup. But again, he's warning you that even when you get to this awareness, it seems so bright and so calm and so undisturbed. You have to check and see whether it's fashioned or not. There's a great passage in John Mahabua where he, his mind gets to the state because there's no images coming up in his mind at all. Themeless concentration of awareness. It's just this bright, bright awareness. Everywhere he looks, it seems like solid things are no longer solid. It's the awareness permeates everything. And at first he thought, hey, this must be it. But then he checks to see, okay, is there? And then he began to see that there was still a little bit of inconstancy, a little bit of stress, a little bit of fabrication going on in there. And so wherever he found that, he was just going to stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And finally that state of awareness was was basically taken apart. And then there was the awareness of, of awakening that replaced it. Which it sounds like you know, it sounds pretty similar, but he said it was as different as night and day, because even this is is fabricated. Whereas once you end all fabrication in the mind, it's whatever takes its place. He says once you've gone to that the unfabricated, you look back at this and excuse me, he said this is a pile of shit. <laughs> and for us, it's, oh, when am I ever going to get that refined in my concentration? <laughs> he says it's a pile of shit, you know. but that's from his his point of view. You know. We haven't gotten there yet. Is there yet. any likelihood that, that anybody could, uh, you know, the average lay practitioner could do this other than on a very long retreat? Either that or very dedicated practice, sort of day to day. It seems like anything day to day, like driving your car, not to mention turning on the radio or the news, you know, mm-hmm. get your mind all spun up. So it's well, learn not, learn not to turn on the news to spin <laughs> up your mind. <laughs> I did until recently. Yeah. But um, and my teacher, he, he had some very, very dedicated lay students. And part of it is you know, this practice of you know, restraint of the senses. Don't bring in anything that's going to disturb you unnecessarily. And then just movies or lectures or maybe even hmm, coming here might be good for you. I don't know. <laughs> but things that are helpful for you to pay attention to what's helpful for your practice and just. For blot out what's not. But the important point is, you know, however far you get on the practice, it's better than not going anywhere. That you keep chipping away. And it's, it's a basic instruction, the same instructions to Rahula. Notice what you're doing, where you're causing suffering. If you're causing suffering, stop. If you're not causing suffering, notice that too. This is what that perception of emptiness, okay, notice what disturbance is present and what's empty of disturbance. Appreciate the emptiness as emptiness. Recognize the disturbance as disturbance, and then see what you're doing to cause it. And see if you can stop it. Just that much there as an instruction for for being skillful will take you a long way. And it's in, you know it's in using these four bases for success that we talked about. And one is the desire, just really keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, because you want to cause less and less and less suffering. And then the persistence, being intent on watching what you're doing, watching the results of what you're doing, being very careful about that. Discriminating in the sense of what's working, what's not working. And then if things are not working, use your powers of improvisation to come up with new ways. 
and all of those working together, that'll get you where you want to go. Other questions? Yes. So one would start to this meditation after already having developed certain stability. Right, right, yeah. yeah. As he says, indulge in it for a while. Once you get a particular perception that you can stick with, he says, enjoy it, find pleasure in it, indulge in it. And then when you've been there long enough that you can begin to realize, it's like going into a bright room. When you first enter the room, it's so bright you can't see anything. But then after a while, your eyes begin to adjust. You begin to say, oh, even in here, there's this little bit of disturbance. Well, let's do something about it. And then you take that away. Because as you get more and more skillful, your idea of what works and what doesn't work also gets more and more refined. What seemed like a really good state of concentration last week, this week, is not enough. It went better. And that's not being, it's not bad-mouthing your concentration, it's just you become more sensitive. You realize there's more. Everybody satisfied? <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, if I'm reading uh, recently a little bit uh, some of the non-dual teachings, mm-hmm. where they say that uh, any effort at all is actually leading the way to the goal. The only place where non-dual awareness is mentioned in the Pali Canon, they classify it as a kind of concentration. So even non-dual awareness is fabricated. Now, if you obey their instructions not to do anything, you're just going to stay there in that state of non-dual concentration. And it's by looking to see, okay, is this this fabricated or not? Begin to question it a little bit. And And if you can see that it's fabricated, then you drop that. I mean, I don't trust anybody that tells you to stop doing things without examining things first. So I'd say, okay, if you can get that state of non-dual concentration, okay, look at it. Look at it long and hard. Indulge in it, enjoy it, and then look at it carefully. And if you see that there's any fabrication in there, okay, then you realize there's more work to be done. Part of this comes from the idea that you cannot use conditioning to get to the unconditioned. I wrote a ho- yeah. Obscure is the unconditioned. Yeah. Well, the whole point of the Buddhist teachings was that you can use the conditioned as a path that gets you there. We talked a little earlier about going to New York City. I mean, the road to New York City doesn't cause New York City. And going on the road to New York City doesn't cause New York City. But you follow the road and you get there. And as for the so the, the technical aspect of causality, there's a book out there, Karma of Questions, and there's an article called Samsara Divided by Zero. And it talks about precisely this point. Okay, fine. And my brain is too burned out right now to go over the argument. <laughs> but this, this, this is your protection, no matter what state you get into in concentration. Get so you know it, settle into it, and then ask yourself, okay, is it fabricated? Is there any disturbance in here? Because ultimately, you can't go by anybody else's teachings at that point. Because it's, 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 it's an issue between you and yourself. And if you've developed that quality of honesty that we started with Rahula, and maintain that honesty all the way through your concentration, that's your protection against getting stuck in less than the ultimate. So, yes? Then you drop it. Then you leave it. 
as long as you're alive. Yeah. Yeah. Now, think at the, at the moment of awakening, there's no experience of the six sense fears. They cease at that point, but then they start up again through the force of past karma. Right. Because you notice he's, he goes through the, the the experience of release, and then he reflects after the release is done. You know, after the experience of release is passed, then he reflects. Okay, what's left now? As a result of the release, those, those the affluence, the ferment, fermentations are gone. Yes. Fabrication. Okay. See if there's any any effort in putting it together. That this particular experience. Any effort in maintaining the experience once it's been put together. All of that effort that it, there's going to be an, there's an element of intention. One of the Buddha's most radical teachings was to realize how much our awareness of the present moment is something that we fabricate. It's an intentional experience, more radically than you might think. Because even, even your, your experience of your body is a fabricated experience. You've taken these various sensations and you put it together in a body. And the same with feelings, perceptions, thought constructs, and consciousness. There's an element of fabrication in all of those. There's an element of intention in all of those. So you have to look and see this experience that you're having. Are you, is there an intentional element that's keeping it going, that's brought it into being, that's maintaining it? Well, you tend to identify with the, with the fabricator. Then sometimes you tend to observe the observe, identify with the observer. You've created, you've fabricated an observer. But don't take that one apart quite yet, okay? <laughs> Keep that one going. Yes. Okay, phase one is just learning how to do the meditation. Phase two is developing skill. Once you've once you been able to get the mind to settle down, then there's the issue, can you bring it back? And it's through this process of skill building that we've been describing all day that you begin to see that there are patterns that help bring the mind, settle it down. Then you notice there are certain things, if you do them, it's going to take the mind off, so you stop doing them. And through kind of trial and effort, trial, trial and effort, trial and error, and trial and success, you find out what works. And you get more and more skillful at the process. And that's all fabrication. And it's all fabrication. Yeah. And then you get to stage two and three and Right. And, and, and this, 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 this passage we just went over here is a description of how that can happen. That you begin to notice, okay, even in this really refined state, there is an element of fabrication, there is an element of fabrication, there is an element of disturbance. Let's drop that. As Andrea pointed out, sometimes it, some people go from the first jhana right into awakening with that insight. Other people just have to go to you know, more and more and more refined stages of concentration until they're up against the wall. And at that point, the only thing that, that can happen when they drop it is awakening. You have to be very observant, and this is why they talk about how your your alighting on emptiness is undistorted. That you see what's present and you see what's not present in terms of disturbance and fabrication. If you deny the element of fabrication or you deny the element of disturbance, that gets in your way. Then you can't see what needs to be dropped. If you say, I'm just sitting here watching the breath, I'm not doing anything at all, I'm not doing anything at all. You're still doing something, and you're blotting out what you're doing, so you can't see it. So it's best right from the very beginning to be honest. Okay, yeah, I am fa fashioning this. Since I am fashioning it, let's do it skillfully. Rather than pushing it off into that big blind spot in the back of my head. Yes? No, even the present is fabricated.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, you, you, want, you want to get to the present, and then you stay there for a while to see to what extent the present is fabricated, too. That's the path. You've got to be in the present moment to see what's happening. And again, even when you're in the present moment, it doesn't mean you don't think about the past and future, because you've got to reflect on the past and anticipate the future. There is an element there. You're aware of that. You're aware of that this is an activity going on. But still, even if it was just your total you know, present awareness, without any of that, there's still an element of fabrication. This themeless concentration of awareness is totally present. And yet, after a while, once you've gotten used to it, it's, you have to get there to see how fabricated it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Mindfulness and discernment, yeah. And you can't have one without the other. I don't know them well enough to. But in the Buddhist practice, the Buddha never creates a, a sharp distinction between mindfulness and concentration practice. The two go together. You practice the mindfulness in order to bring the mind to deeper concentration. Once the mind is in good concentration, your mindfulness gets sharper, which enables you to get more concentrated and you get more mindful. So the two go together. And some people ask, well, how, how, how concentrated should I get? And the answer is, as concentrated as you can get. You know? <laughs> as long as you're aware and mindful of what you're doing. Yes. What you're doing is, you may not be able to stay in such intense states of concentration, but notice when they talk about these formless states, they talk about them as dimensions. It's like a dimension of experience. And when you tune into that dimension, I, it's, it's possible just to sort of be in touch with that dimension and not totally absorb, but know it's there. My teacher had a student who was, um, whose husband ran a store, and she, it was you know, a Chinese shop house kind of store. You know, they lived in the store, basically. And she was helping him to run the store. She had seven kids. People coming in, going out of the store all day, all the issues with the kids and everything. And she'd been able to get to that state of um, consciousness, the infinitude of consciousness in her meditation. And she could be in touch with it all day long. It was kind of like that's where she lived. So if she can do it... I think you're right, yeah. It's that you notice that some forms of effort, after all, become a disturbance. When they're not helpful. And remember we talked about practice as being seeing how to do things more efficiently? This is why you practice meditation. So you can get the mind concentrated with less effort and more discernment. 
So if the effort is helping to keep your mind centered, hold on to it. But if it gets, uh, John Fung, my teacher, made the analogy of it. Getting the mind concentrated is like pouring cement. You know, as long as the cement hasn't hardened yet, you keep the forms up. And then when the cement is hardened, you take the forms off. And so it's the same with the, with the concentration. There's, there, as here they say, to, you know, indulging and settling in your concentration. Okay? And when you're settling in, don't start doing your discernment work yet. Okay, once you're settled in, you say, okay, what, what effort or what burden here is unnecessary? Drop that. But if you drop it so much, you lose your concentration. Well, you've dropped too much. You've done it too soon. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? Before the concrete was set. Yeah. Yeah. Yes? Look, I told you how to get there. Okay? <laughs> if I tell you what it looks like, then you'll go home and clone it. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Just do it. Because <laughs> every step, it's not that you know, all, the, all the prizes are, are waiting at the end of the path, right? You know, the fact that you can, you can settle in on these things, you can access these things on the way. Whatever you can get is, is a good achievement. So don't worry about it. And nobody can tell you how far you can go. Different people have different capabilities. There was the case in the canon of this one guy who passed away and the Buddha said, you know, he was, by the time when he actually died, he was a stream veteran. Now up to that point, he'd, been, he'd live in kind of loosely, he happened to drink and do a few other things. But when he got seriously ill, he got his act together and, before he died, reached stream entry. So, you just do what you can. Yes? Is the word insight and awakening used interchangeably? No. Is the word, word insight and awakening used interchangeably? And the answer is no. So, you just mentioned you have to go along towards it and you have certain, a certain Sorry. sense of Right, mm-hmm. and certain yeah, insights come. Insight, insight. That's insight. Purifying process. I mean, I'm not that I'm caught up with the definition mm-hmm. of insight, mm-hmm. but I hear the words so often. I'm trying to figure out what's an insight. Do an insight is sound? seeing any point where you're causing yourself unnecessary stress or suffering, and you can drop it. And that's an insight. And then there are certain levels of insight that would actually constitute awakening, where you actually have absolutely dropped that kind of unskillful action for good. You'll never pick it up again. That's an awakening moment. Because the awakening involves opening up to the deathless. So if it's just an insight that says, oh, I stopped doing that, but there's no deathless around, okay, that's just an insight. Going back a few questions when you indicated that uh, being in the present is... The path. Yeah, Yeah, right. Is that because you fabricated... I mean, you know, there's a sense of it's because there's an actual action. The present moment is, is fabricated because there's an action of putting together, putting together, putting together with every moment. Without that present fabrication, you wouldn't experience the present. And this is why states of awakening, there is no present. There's, it steps out of time entirely because there's that, that element of fabrication is stopped. Yes? For an arahant, there's always, there's always contact with, that, with the deathless. Up to that point, there's, you know, there's an experience from which you withdraw. And you've got the memory. You know how you got there. And, it gave, and the fact that you know how you got there and how it happened, it gave you certain insights into what reality is like. Because you had to take it apart to get there. But I mean, you, know that, you know that it's there, but you're not in contact with it until you have your next awakening experience. As for arahants, they say, they're constantly in touch. Um, one of the last conversations I had with John Sawat, who was my second teacher. I don't know if you heard, uh, 
he had, in 1996, he had been in an automobile accident, suffered brain damage, lung damage, was paralyzed from the base of his spine on down. And he lived for another six years after that. Shortly before he died, I visited him. And he was telling me, he said, you know, my brain is sending me all sorts of weird perceptions. And he stopped for a second, he said, but that thing I got with my meditation, it never, it's never gone away. <laughs> so I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> okay, hope this has been helpful.